0: Amen. Hey, as you're sitting down, if you want to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Esther, we're picking up uh, the second week of a six-part study on the book of Esther. And so today we're going to be in verses 13 of chapter 1 through verse 18 of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to take that home with you. Uh, be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know where the books are. Large numbers are going to be chapters, and small numbers are verses. Again, this morning, we're in the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 13, and, uh, through chapter 2, verse 18, rather. And so, let us move through this at, at somewhat of an accelerated uh, pace. When you think about uh, the book of Esther, if you weren't here last week, let me set the stage for you so you're caught up with us, so you know what's going on. Uh, The book of Esther takes place uh, following the exile. So the exile happens. There's a king in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He comes and grabs Judah. He takes them up to Babylon. They're held in captivity. And then the Persians come in, and they uh, depose uh, Nebuchadnezzar's heir, a man named Nabonidus, and he takes over and Cyrus says, look, I'm a different type of leader, go back. And so he utters this uh, decree and they're able to go back into the land. Well, when the book of Esther picks up, this is uh, Cyrus's grandson, Ahasuerus, uh, the son of Darius, And there are some Jews who've chosen not to go back into the land. They have stayed, they have remained in the place where they were held in exile, and the name of the city happens to be Susa, which today you can find it on the border, pretty much, of Iraq and Iran, although within the boundaries of the country of uh, Iran. And so that's, that's kind of what happened. So chapter one opens up and there's this monumental party for 180 days. And so for six months, it's an open bar. It's just this unbelievable party. It's all a part of Ahasuerus' plan for people to come in and say, you are really rich. You are really powerful. He says, Calm down now. You're right. I am really rich. I am really powerful. Would you want to go with me and declare war against the Greeks? And they're like, I don't know. He's like, but remember, I'm really rich. I'm really powerful. And they're like, all right, 180 days. We're in. And then he's like, all right, all right. We need a seven day party where we're just going to live it up, just a smaller group, and it's going to be even more amazing. And they say, yes, we love it. At the end of seven days, we're told the king is just wasted. He's in this mind. And he says, you know what would be great? It's been 187 days. You should see my wife. She's gorgeous. and so he calls, he says, uh, eunuchs, go get my wife, go get Queen Vashti, she's gorgeous, they all should see her, honey, come on over here and let the guys see you walk through the room. And so they go to her and they say, this is what the king wants, and her response is, no. No. I don't care what he did for 187 days. I'm not going in that room. She says no. And when we pick up the passage in verse 13, King Ahasuerus is living in the fallout of her refusal to bow to the pressures of the dictates, the display of his power. I was thinking on the issue of of power Uh, the other day. We were headed... Uh, to go hunt with the kids, and we're listening to the, the first book out of the Harry Potter series, which I heartily endorse uh, that you listen to. Jim Dale is a fantastic narrator. You should definitely listen to it and read it if that's how you get down. Um, anyway, in there, we're coming close to the end of the book, and Voldemort has this line where he says, there is no good and evil. There's only power and those too weak to seek it. And it's this idea that, 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 that good or bad, good or evil, are com- incredibly subjective. And what's really important is having and amassing power. And, and having power allows us to set the conversation. It allows us to lead people's lives. It allows us, in some sense, just to be in charge. And so this is the mindset that's rolled out there. And I think we can see that. I mean we see that in our headlines, we see that on our web pages, we see that on our Facebook feed, that what we see is a world beset and striving after power and being powerful allowing its whims, its desires, its, its hopes, and its dreams to be ruled according to the dictates of the few who are the powerful. And what we see in King Ahasuerus is a man who wanted power above all things and to be recognized as having more power than anyone around him. What he has encountered is somebody who said no to his power. So verse 13 picks up. It says, The king said to the wise men who knew the times... And so the king turns, and he has these these guys around him, and, and their job is to look at the heavens, to look at stars. And so when the king asks questions, and he comes to them, he says, listen, what needs to be done at this? They can say, oh, I remember the moon was passing along here, and the star was doing this. King, this is what this needs to look like. And so he turns to them, and he begins to have this conversation with them, and the gist of his question is, verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, Listen to this, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. She said no to me, what in the world is my recourse? She said no to me, what in the world is my recourse? So these guys, their job is solely to be prepared, to be ready, to answer when the king comes with a request. And his request is somewhat simple, isn't it? He wants to know what he can do. Listen you're all there, you heard her say no, what do I need to do? He has no original ideas of his own, he's always constantly taking the opinions of others and seeking them out over the entirety of the book of Esther, and so he goes to these men, what needs to be done? And Memucan, this guy, he has the solution for King Ahasuerus. And so he, he has this lengthy discussion in verses 16 through 20 where he lines out exactly what the king needs to do. And, and more than this, he wants the king to know, listen, buddy, this isn't just a problem for you. It's not just that your wife said no and so you've got some type of matrimonial issues that you need to work through. What's happened here in front of all of us is, man, it is going to be a problem for the entire kingdom. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So everywhere from Pakistan to the northern part of Sudan, we all suffer because she said no to you. Listen, listen, King Aha, you need to understand that this is big problems for all of us. And so you can think that King Ahasuerus is like, yeah, that's right. It wasn't against just me. It's against all of us. We're all in this together, brothers. And they're like, yes, he's buying it. Keep going, keep going. So verse 17, it says, the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women. All the women are going to know what happened. The queen's behavior is going to be known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Woo! Have you ever had a woman stare at you with contempt? It's horrifying. <laughs> It's absolutely devastating, and this is what Memukin says. Listen, listen, you think it's bad news for you. Every woman from 127 provinces from Pakistan to northern Sudan, they're going to have nothing but contempt in their eyes. They're going to do this, and we may not make it. Something's got to be done. It's a national emergency. Let's put this Greece thing on hold. we got to settle this thing. They're going to look at them with contempt because they'll say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Bashir to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. And he says, Baba, you got to do something, King Aha. This seems to be a real aha moment. You need to come into this. You need to solve this situation. So he says, he concocts this deal. He says, listen, if it pleases the king, if this is good with you, buddy, we're all going to roll with it. If it sits good with the king, let a decree go out from you that we have a couple things we need to handle really quick. We're not going to call her Queen Vashti anymore. We're going to strip her of her title, and we're going to, buddy, we're going to find you a better queen. Whoever that is for you, she's going to be so much better. So let's just kick Vashti to the curb, settle that, and then if you could just write a letter... Uh, Just kind of addressing this and solving this for us so that there would be honor had for every husband, both high and low, through all the land. This is what we need to do. Throughout all the land that women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now, what's the big issue? The big issue is that when people find out about this, women are going to begin to think, I can't say no to my husband. And so what do they do to fix it? They tell everybody about it. These guys are not the brightest, they are not the sharpest, but they are definitely the most insecure. And so they send this letter, this decree to everyone, everywhere, and the king says, I like this, this is an aha moment, let's go with that. And so he sent letters, verse 22, to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script. So this is a scene. You've got a room or rooms full of men who are like, "No, what did he say? He says, they have to honor. All right, I'm going to write it in this language. What are you writing? Oh, it's a different language. I can't read that. And so they're all writing it in these different languages. And then they get this, this kind of early idea of the Pony Express. And so these guys jump on horses, and they're riding and going just as fast as the wind. And somebody would come up and say, what are you carrying? You look like you're traveling with all haste. And they say, this is the most important message. It's got to get out. It's got to get out today. And they say, why? What happened? And they say, who? Vashti said no. I'm sorry, what now? Like war? The Greeks are coming? No, no, it's not that. It's just your wife needs to honor you. Well, what do you mean? Why is this a big deal? Because the queen's wife didn't honor the king. Well, how am I supposed to do that? I'm not as powerful as the king. Not our problem. Not our problem. The hubris, the humility (laughs) not found in this is so incredibly bewildering. The king's inability to, to suffer the negative response from his wife to receive the no from his wife led to a decree that went out over 127 provinces, untold amounts of money carrying this message in haste, asking every man in the entirety of his kingdom to do the very thing he was unable to do, to force his wife to do something. And so he sends this out, and all of this goes out. And so we can read the humor in here that the author of Esther clearly wants us to see. Oh man, as soon as people find out, it's going to be awful. Contempt and wrath all over the place. What are we going to do? Well, let's tell everybody that this is the way it really needs to be. Uh, All the while not telling them that the king has no new clothes. Chapter 2 opens up and we begin to see that some time has passed. Now, the difficulty in looking at this is we get a time stamp when the book of Esther opens up. We find that it's the third year of his reign. And then in verse 16 of chapter 2, we find that it is the seventh year of his reign. So sometime in here, there's a four-year span of time that's unfolding. Now, Esther doesn't address this, but one of the things that that history tells us is that in in about uh, 480, 479 B.C., Ahasuerus goes out and he declares war on the Greeks and so he goes out if you've seen the movie 300 this is when that takes place and so there's some battles on land there's a sea battle that ultimately he loses he just about bankrupts the Persian empire and he comes home with his tail tucked between his legs he's defeated just like his dad had been defeated so sometime in there all of these things work out but as chapter 2 opens up, we see, that what, look what he says here. He says, after these things, so after the decree went out, after everybody's told this, this is what your home needs to look like. When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he's no longer angry anymore. Aren't we all so happy? He remembered Vashti. Now listen, you may read this and think, oh man, he wants his lady back. He's so heartbroken. But what we read in this in the passive language employed gives us a sense that he's not remembering her fondly. You notice the author still doesn't use the word queen. Listen, he says he remembered her and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He's not angry. But he still remembers. The elephant doesn't forget. He remembers what it was like to be told no. And for whatever reason, he feels the need to follow the advice given earlier. He wants that better queen. And so he's surrounded again this time by his eunuchs, by these guys who their sole job was to attend to his need. Not to give him wisdom, but to attend to his need. And they said, this is what we need to do. We need a competition. That's what every good king needs to cool his ego in the midst of a loss. We need a competition. And this competition is seedy. This competition is foul." Now there's this sanitized version of this where you read through and say really what they did was they traveled all throughout the land and they found the fairest in the land, kind of this this fairy tale language, right? That's not what they're looking for necessarily. They're looking for women who are attractive, but they're also ultimately looking for women that satisfy the sexual appetite of the king because this is the test given for the women and this is the test the king subjects them to. He says, let us go out into all the provinces of the kingdom and gather, and gather beautiful young virgins uh, to the harem in Susa, to the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's unit who's in charge of all the women. And he says, "And then let them be given cosmetics. Let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. It pleased the king, and so he did so. And so this is what happens. They go out through all the land and they begin to call and grab women. They're not walking in and saying, kind sir, would you mind if we take your daughter? And he says, oh, you can't have her. You can have this other one. They're going out and they're just taking because every person in his kingdom submits to the power of the king. Every man and every woman. So unless you read this and you say, wow, the Persians are really awful. They're really sexist people. Look at what they're doing to women. They would also go out Annually, And Herodotus tells us that annually they would take 500 men from the kingdom and they would make them eunuchs to serve the kingdom. They are an equal opportunity offender. They are powerful over all. They are lording over all. They want their authority to be felt by all. Well, in the midst of this discussion, the narrator kind of interrupts the flow of things and he lets us know about this guy named Mordecai so begin to think well this is curious why not move directly into this discussion of what's taking place look at verse 5 he says uh, now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai the son of Jer the son of Shammai the son of Kish a Benjamite who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives who were carried away with King Jeconiah the king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away so he's saying, This is how this works. We had this uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, he went down to Judah. He carried Jeconiah. He carried the uh, ancestors of Mordecai. And, and this is his connection. This is how he is tied into the story. And this man, Mordecai, has a daughter in his charge. Actually, a woman named Hadassah, whose parents had died, whom he had taken to himself to raise as his daughter. Verse 7 says, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And so Esther, she gets caught up in the same thing too. And so we're left wondering at this point in the story, what is the significance What is the significance of Mordecai? What is the significance of his lineage? And all these things, the narrator shows us why it's so incredibly important later on that he is a Benjaminite, an heir of Saul. Why it's so incredibly important that this young girl has this duality of identity, giving both her Jewish name and her Persian name, Hadassah and Esther, But as we read and go through this, we recognize that life in the harem is is difficult. Life in the harem, and so these women are taken, uh, Hadassah included, Esther included, they're taken and they're put in there, and they would be kept in the harem until their name was called. And while they're in the harem, there there was a solid year of just preparation, and so, a lot of what this might have looked like for them is bathing in oils, trying to make their skin supple. There's an archaeologist who found this, this cube, and he said the cube would have held uh, incense, it would have held oils, and they would have uh, lit it so, so smoke would come out of it. And so, they take a robe uh, over themselves and they would cover their whole body over this cube so their skin would just absorb the smells coming from the incense and coming from the oils. And so this was all day every day. Their life was lived out in preparation for this one time with the king. For this one time with the king. Now the, the reality of this situation is they would, it would go in, their name would be called, and then they could take whatever with them that they wanted to. And so they could take jewels, they could take clothing, they could take uh, whatever it is, they could have their hair done a certain way. Anything they wanted to, they could take in with the king. And, and when they went in with the king, he had his way with them. It wasn't merely just a beauty competition. competition. It was a beauty and sex competition. This king would sleep with them. This king would have his way with them. And then in the morning, this king would send them on their way. The power displayed in this empire is vile. It is despicable. And it is incredibly hopeless for those caught up within its grasp. And so they would go along this deal and and, and then even after this experience, the text tells us that they would go and they would be transferred to a second harem, uh, verse 14 of chapter two, into the custody of of Shiasgaz, the king's eunuch who is in charge of all the concubines. So they go in, they have their night with the king. The best possible scenario for them in their mind, potentially, is that he either calls them his queen or he just sends them on their way. But as they're sent on their way, they're transferred, not from this harem of preparation, but from this harem of perpetual keeping. They would be transferred to be a concubine and they would live out the remainder of their days kept in the charge. Any children will become the property of the empire. They would have lower level jobs. They would never be able to marry. They would never be able to leave. They would be kept until they were no longer useful for the empire. There's such an incredibly low view of human life here. And this is the situation that we find young Esther in. And the text tells us that when she goes into the harem that for whatever reason, Haggai let his favor rest upon her. She grew in favor more than anyone else. And so he assigned women to care for her. He assigned helpers for her. They gave her the best of the cosmetics and, and cared for her. And so all these things are transpiring. And then what we find in this moment, before she goes into the king, as she has kept her Jewishness secret, as she has kept her true identity secret, we're told once again that she has grown in favor there. And four years have transpired. So this king has been with somewhere between 400 and 1,000 different women. A different woman every night, and depending on when his, his attempted conquest of Greece is, somewhere between 400 and 1,000 women. And what hope does Esther have? She's just another face. She's just another person. And for whatever reason, the favor of God rests upon her. She goes to Haggai and she says, what should I take? He instructs her on in what to take. She goes in. She is with the king. And listen what it tells us. Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is not a moment of love. This is not a moment where the king's heart became like the Grinch's heart and it grew ten sizes. Finally, someone came who could satisfy his appetite. Finally, someone came that pleased him. And what he did was take a crown that had no power, that had no authority, and he put it on someone else's head. And this king was finally satisfied. His power had ruined hundreds of lives. And in his mind, his power was finally displayed on another who was beautiful, on another who was compliant and ultimately on another who was better than Vashti. And when we think about this depiction of power and all that it portrays, and the king rejoices and he throws this wonderful feast, he gives people the day off, he grants forgiveness for their taxes, and he heads again to another party. But when we think again about this display of power, it is the way of the world. Powerful people using others to satisfy their appetites, their basest needs, wants, and desires. So when we think about this, it has been some of our experience to suffer abuse at the hands of powerful people. Some of us, our personal narrative, our story is to have been a survivor of abuse perpetrated by somebody else. And every time we talk about abuse or we talk about family issues, we make this plea. If you have suffered abuse and haven't spoken to someone, we would love to hear your story, to connect you with a counselor who could help you. If you are currently suffering and living in the middle of abuse and wondering, is it normal and is it okay? It is not okay. No one gets to abuse you and it to be okay. We want to help you be safe we want to help uh, address the situation going on in your marriage in your relationship if you are an abuser and you are here today and the person you're abusing isn't here let my quick word to, to you be stop my second word to you be get help from me or someone else we are not a church or a people who tolerate and condone abuse esther is not written as a fairy tale of how a beautiful marriage grows out of abuse. That's not what's taking place here. We offer that word on abuse. But let's think quickly about power as we are concluding and what our response to power should be. What, do we, what does it look like for us to live righteously amidst the powerful? We don't look at Esther as an example for how to live Today. Esther in chapter 2 and verse 7 said her name was Hadassah, her name was Esther, and then when we come to chapter 2 and verse 10, Mordecai tells her you need to conceal your Jewishness don't let anyone know who you are, this is not a behavior, this is not a pattern of life that we want to emulate and model ourselves after, we want to live such a vibrant, full, beautiful display of Christianity so that when we suffer, we suffer uttering the name of Jesus but within this, there is this desire that we just want to, if I just kind of water down my Christianity, then, then maybe I could, could bring uh, relief to the midst of my suffering. I could bring relief to the midst of these things, and I wouldn't have to suffer if I just live kind of this toast, quiet, obscure Christianity. This is not the role. This is not the path for a Christian. There's also this temptation to desire power. This temptation that, that, that if I had power, I would wield it well, and I, and I would care for others well. The story of Esther is not written, so we would walk into this narrative thinking, oh, but if I had been king of Persia, I would do things differently. And to engender in you this desire as a Christian for power. So we ask the question of how do we respond to abuses of power? How do we respond to abuses of power? Well, as a citizen. As a citizen, I think one of the first things we do is we vote for people who we do not see, or we see evidence, rather, that they would not be people easily prone to abuses of power. And this is difficult, right? This is insanely difficult. But, but I think it's an exercise we have to go through as citizens in a country where we pick our leaders, or we play a role in picking our leaders. So we need to pick leaders based upon folks. If they remind you of King Ahasuerus, we say, Whoo, we have an aha moment, and we say, no. We need to pick leaders who we do not th- uh, find to be likely as those who would abuse their power. What do we do in the midst of this? How do we respond to abuses of power? We vote. How, what do we do as a church? We bring in this idea of James one twenty seven. we care for those who are abused. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress. James isn't writing this and just saying, these are the only two groups you have to care about. Don't worry. If you care about them, you're safe for everybody else. What he does is he finds two people within the first century who have no rights on their own. And he says, care for them find people who are marginalized, find people who have suffered the abuse of powerful people and care for them. We need to be caught up consistently caring for them. Listen to this, listen to this. Sometimes we need to admit that our limited capacity to affect change, recognize that my involvement with something won't necessarily bring about the desired end, but but, our obedience doesn't depend on the possibility of a righteous outcome our obedience is mandated because our God calls us to be faithful even when the outcome won't change. And so we work tirelessly to bring it into abuse. We don't give up, we never concede. We constantly strive for greater and greater kingdom impact, seeking to be faithful. Let me address something. Let's let's, let's think about, uh, so we have this idea of society. We need to be caught up. We need to be moving and working against those who would abuse. What about the church? For a long time, it was this really taboo deal to talk about abuse within the confines of a church because what if we give God a black eye? Friends, many of us have given God a black eye on the basis of our daily behavior. And we continue to give him a black eye and a bad name by not addressing abuse in the church. He is not embarrassed, he is hurt. This idea of abuse in the church, of clergy abuse. I remember a number of years ago, I, I said something about a pastor, and, and, and the line was said to me, Oh, don't speak ill of the Lord's anointed. Well, this is a reference David said about Saul, not about pastors in the church, right? So let's be clear on that. I'm not king, and neither was this person I spoke out against. A king in his own mind, much like Ahasuerus. but I digress. I'm an abuse of a pastor or a pastor abusing people by their personality and by their actions has no place, and they are invalidating their role as pastor. Frequently, Hebrews thirteen and verse seventeen is used because simply it just says, "Obey your leaders." Not a ton of wiggle room there, right? But there's so much of a glorious backstory. Let me just read two places for you. This is a longer conversation. and I'm sorry that we're going a little long. 1 Timothy 3, Paul's giving the qualifications of an elder, and there, there are a number in there, but let me just focus on a couple of these. He says they need to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Listen to this, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Oftentimes, when you find pastors caught up in an abuse of personality, constantly dictating and mandating how people need to be, and every time somebody is a detractor, what do they say? Your problem is a refusal to submit. It's not my problem, it's your problem. Do you read this? Do you see this? Do you see the heart of the pastor in this? Because what it seems to me is a direct... Uh, invalidation of their ability to stand and be a pastor if they're going to abuse their sheep. They have no place in a pulpit. They have no place serving in a church if they're going to abuse the very people that God has entrusted to them to care for. You cannot care for the people you abuse. Titus, Paul's addressing the same thing. He's talking about qualifications of an elder. And he says that an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. What does he say there? He can't be arrogant or quick-tempered. So when people confront them, when they come to them and say, you have failed me in this way, or I see this in, what should their initial response be? It should be this broken-hearted introspection, asking God, did I fail in this way? turning to people around them and saying, do you see this failure in me? And not the echo chamber that pastors so frequently surround themselves with. Hey, am I okay? Yeah, you're okay, you're okay. Much like King Aha's dummies. There's no place for this. If you find yourself in a church with this, leave, leave quickly. It's sad, man. This is the reality that we live in. We live in the reality that that when somebody comes forward and they say that I've been sexually abused in a church, what do we say? Don't speak ill of the church's anointed. Don't speak ill of their pastor. We, We find ourselves being investigators of the abused. This isn't our role. Somebody comes forward and they say, I have been abused. What do we do? We contact the authorities, then we begin to get involved. It is not the church's role to be an investigator, to, to, to warn out and feather out whether or not abuse actually has occurred. Man, I'm frustrated because I see this over and over and over again. As someone who was molested as a child, it bothers me that the churches don't believe folks when they come out and say they've been abused. I think about my story and and how it could have been different if the people I reached out to would have believed me and done something. But frequently over the course of the church, people don't care. We want to be fake, we want to be pretty, we want to go through the motions. We must believe, we must act, we must be compassionate. We must not be those who seek to protect the church. God's doing that. Should we desire power? The church did really well in the first couple of, really the first century. It had zero power. They were terrified. They thought they were going to die. And the church flourished. With Cozy to the Roman, Roman Empire, things began to go well. Constantine, so on and so forth, begin to grow in power and influence and land and begin to have this, this kind of slippery slope that's not so great but sometimes we're tempted to think that we need power we need the ability to exercise this power i want to hit two things and then we'll be done i'm sorry paul writing in second corinthians twelve. Second corinthians 12 he's pleading he's asking the lord to help him with something that he's struggling with and god's not taking it away from him He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It seems that weakness is not a liability. Weakness is a blessing. Weakness makes us needful. Weakness makes us recognize the need for God's grace at work in our lives. Weakness is what we need. Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan, Satan took him out in all these various temptations after he had fasted. He took him out to the highest point, and he said, do you see all this land? Do you see all this before you? I'll give it all to you if you bow down and worship me, thinking Jesus would be tempted to taking power for himself. But he rebuked Satan. Power is not the way. Jesus shows us the way in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 Speaking of Jesus, he says, who though in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus had all power and all majesty and he released it. He could have ruled and he could have reigned as king here on earth and he released it. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man, being born in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what it looks like for us to be exiles in the land. Not to be powerful. We speak against abuses of power, but we are weak. He and he alone is strong. He and he alone is powerful. And he and he alone deserves to rule. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us, for an opportunity to worship you here in this place. God, I pray that you would forgive us for our attempts to seize power for ourselves. God, I pray that you would forgive us for those times when we seek to rest in our own power and ability instead of yours instead of your power father i pray for those who've not yet responded to your gospel recognizing that jesus who released himself or didn't avail himself rather to the power that was his came and lived and died and rose again to bring them to himself that they might be forgiven their sins and their trespasses so god i pray that you would be at work in their hearts Father, I pray for those who in this place who have suffered abuse at the hands of the powerful. That you would help them to see in your son Jesus one who has suffered at the hands of the powerful as well. One who knows their suffering, who's intimately acquainted with it. One who calls them to himself to be comforted, to be healed, and to be forgiven. God, we pray for their safety. We pray for their escape. We pray for their salvation. We submit these things to you in Christ's name, amen.